This is episode five of the Immunology Podcast, Plasmodium Infection with Drs. Judy Lieberman and Caroline Junquiera. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Drs. Judy Lieberman and Caroline Junquiera from Harvard Medical School on the podcast to talk about their research on plasmodium suppression by gamma delta T-cells, one of my favorite T-cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in the immunology news coming up. But first... Explore scientific resources for your immunology research at the Stem Cell Technologies Immunology Learning Center. Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit stemcell.com forward slash immunology dash research. All right. So All right. let's talk a little bit science. Yeah. So what I'm, do you have for me today? Uh, I'm going to start with a paper and then you're going to play a quiz before we dive into it. So I'll read it off first. So it's virus mediated inactivation of anti-apoptotic BCL2 family members promote gastermin E dependent pyroposis or pyroptosis in barrier epithelial cells by first author Megan H. Orzali, uh, and it's Immunology, published 11th of May here in 2021. So the quiz is, is this about COVID or not about COVID? Hmm. I'm going to say it is about COVID. Everything is about COVID these days. Ooh. So it was Am almost a trick question. It's not about COVID in the paper at all, but it could eventually be about COVID. Is there a figure about COVID? There are zero figures about COVID. Okay. Okay. That's refreshing. Yeah. So we're going to talk about other viruses. So this paper gets into some parts of immunology I had transiently thought about, but hadn't deep dived into. I've worked on Gastermin some in the past, Gastermin D, uh, but I hadn't dived into either Gastermin E, which is another member of this family, or uh, into this program in general. So to kind of take a back step, the Gastermin proteins um, are part of the cascade that leads to something called pyroptosis, which is kind of a programmed inflammatory cell death that's noted by these pores forming by the Gastermins that then leads to their death. And it's caspase dependent. Not apoptosis, not just wanton necrosis, not necroptosis, but pyroptosis, another ptosis. So what's interesting is they were trying to understand how viruses cause this to happen. So we know all about pattern recognition receptors of PRRs that bind microbial products like the TLRs and are part of innate immunity. But what's less understood is guard proteins, which is something I hadn't thought about before. And these proteins basically are there all the time. And when viral infection inhibits protein synthesis, which is part of what viral infection does, that's sensed and that initiates pyroposis in humans and cells generally. And so they demonstrate this here very elegantly and map out a pathway where this is now better appreciated. So they found that certain viruses, so VSV or HSV1, uh, induce, when I mean, these are viruses that infect the skin, right? So they found that these viruses operate by um, inhibiting two specific sensors so two specific guard proteins, one's MCL1 and one's BCL-XL. And either one of these alone isn't sufficient, but when you inhibit both of them together, which is what these viruses do at baseline, that then leads to mitochondrial damage that leads to caspase-3-dependent cleavage of gastermin E, release of interleukin A, and the pyroposis pathway. So it was really neat about this is that A, they demonstrated for the first time that gastermin E is um, involved in these processes versus the canonical gastermin D, which is the one that's most well uh, described. Gastermin E and gastermin B are known to occur in the context and do this in the context of DNA damage or cancer, but not in the context of infection. And they showed so E is involved in caspase-dependent pyroposis after infection. So that's one big finding. But what they really found and mapped out in a tour de force is um, the whole cascade, and then identifying these uh, sentinel proteins that really kind of stand. And so they go through and they use various inhibitors. They use like a whole bunch of CRISPR lines in, in human skin organoids and in keratinocytes to demonstrate that 
And it is indeed both of them that are necessary. Either one alone doesn't work. If they modify the viruses to um, operate differently, you lose the ability for them to, say, um, degrade. You know, so if you make a virus unable to affect protein synthesis, the cascade stopped. So they break down on every step of the pathway and really quite well map out that viruses, through their mechanism of inhibiting these sentinel proteins, um, or guard proteins as they call them, or which I guess is the technical name. Sentinel sounds better. I'll be like the X-Men. Um, but the, these guard proteins, if you block them, then you end up then generating this cascade. So it's pretty neat. It's a whole other side of immunology I had not thought about. I think a lot about PRRs. I hadn't thought about guard proteins before. I knew they were there, but not that they were driving pyroposis. And so that was really neat to see. And then they really show that these viruses do it. So could COVID also do this? Maybe. Um, you know, it's inflammatory. So maybe, but they don't mention it here. And it was really cool to read a virus paper without a discussion of COVID for once. <laughs> but is this uh, paraptosis at all related to viruses that are cytolytic? Our viruses are not cytolytic find ways of preventing this, of not activating this pathway? So I don't think, I am not a pyroposis expert. It's it's an inflammasome dependent process. So anytime you get an inflammasome going, you're going to get some level of pyroptosis unless the viral cell can detect it. But one of the ways that, that the host, in this case human cells, overcomes viral infection and like, you know, lets it die to stop the virus from going is by triggering these sentinel processes. Right. So these guard proteins are another way around. So the virus has to inhibit protein synthesis to then have it take over. And so it detects that. And that's a strategy that, that, that the host uses to alert the body to the viral being present and then initiate a death event. So you have to have some form of caspase inhibition to stop this. But anything that would inhibit caspases would stop pyroposis generally. I guess... I have to say, many. I, I'm not completely aware of all the mechanisms of viruses. Do viruses usually inhibit caspase uh, triggering? Is that a thing they do? I don't think so, generally. I, I don't know either off the top of my head, but that's not something I generally associate them with doing. Well, viruses, they're quite interesting uh, elements of nature. And you know what other thing is an element of nature? And I think, Jason, you being the senior of the two of us, probably feeling it, aging. Yes. Aging. Yes, yes, I am. It's a fact of nature. And this paper I want to talk about is uh, a work in which they kind of artificially aged the immune compartment of mice and looked at what that did. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not really nice for the mice. So this uh, this paper is uh, was published in Nature uh, very recently as well and is a Title: An age immune system drives senescence and aging of solid organs, and it's from first authors Matthew Yusefade and Raphael Flores from the lab of Laura Niedenhofer at the University of Minnesota. And uh, the lab, the Niedenhofer lab, seems has a lot of experience with senescence and aging, and they are kind of uh, they had this this work on looking at the effects of senescence in specifically the hematopoietic compartment and the immune cells. So they, what they did was to, to have a, they have a mouse model in which they specifically knock out an endonuclease called ERCC1, uh, specifically in hematopoietic cells and their descendants. And uh, this, this endonuclease, uh, the absence of this endonuclease impairs the DNA repair uh, DNA damage repair and accelerates the accumulation of endogenous oxidative lesions and therefore kind of triggers senescence in, in, in several. So this is in general in mice, the knockout of this of this enzyme uh, leads to senescence of cells due to the accumulation of this DNA damage. And senescence is this uh, concept in which uh, considered a chemosuppressor mechanism that is in fact activated in response to, to stress and results in basically cell cycle arrest and a secretory phenotype that is mostly pro-inflammatory and, and induces tissue damage. And basically what it means to be, to get old. And what they, what is very nice, so they, they, what they did is they used a specific Cree, uh, 
uh, mouse, which are um, Cree with the VAV1 gene that I was uh, was not very aware of this of this Cree line. And they they lead specifically this this enzyme, this anonuclease in in uh, this hematopoietic cells. And then they look at the mice at different ages and they compare them with old mice. They use two year old mice and with kind of the wild type mouse. And they 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 show that in fact by increasing the accumulation of this DNH damage, they can find certain markers that are um, markers of, of, of progressive uh, accumulation of the DNA oxidative damage because this enzyme is not there to repair it. And when they look at the immune cells, they find that already at five or six months of age, these mice have, have already started a peripheral leukopenia. They have reduced amounts of T cells, B cells in their, in their blood. Uh, they have activation marker increase, particularly in, in CD4 cells, CD44, PD1. And they have a delayed or have a reduced um, responsiveness of, of their uh, adaptive immune system. For example, uh, they do a, a delayed type of hypersensitivity with a, by um, uh, inoculating mice with a with an antigen that um, that I, I I hadn't heard of before, which is the keyhole limpid hemocyanine, which is very immunogenic. And then they see that afterwards they they look at footpath swelling by uh, rechallenge the mice, and they see mice that are the senescent mice, they have a senescent immune system, they have reduced production of antibodies against this uh, this antigen, and they have a reduced uh, response against this antigen. And also, um, they look at the myeloid cell clusters, and they also uh, find that they have markers that are consistent with senescence. And particularly, there's two things that are um, kind of seem to be widely accepted as markers of senescence, which are two uh, inhibitors of uh, cyclin-dependent kinase, kinases, which are uh, known as P16 and P21, and they are upregulated in, in, in the context of senescence, and they are the ones that are kind of uh, generating this arrest of cell cycle, and uh, they see that these markers are mostly increased in most of the uh, immune cells of this mice. And um, so basically what they show is that by, by inhibiting this, they can uh, induced senescence in the immune compartment. But what is very interesting is that when they look at the non-immune cells, they also see that there is a, in general, a uh, increase, there's this kind of signs of old age in other organs, such as the liver, the lungs, and they can see that uh, increase of these P16 and P21 uh, in many of these, um, these organs, and uh, which is related to increasing filtration of pro-inflammatory cells, such as pro-inflammatory macrophages, increased uh, serum levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines, including IL-1-beta. And in general, these mice have a reduced uh, lifespan. Most of the mice, so 50% of the mice die around one and a half years of age, whereas normal mice can live four years, uh, uh, three, four years easily. And what is very interesting is that they can uh, really... Uh, they show that by just transferring splenocytes from the knockout mice into regular wild-type mice, they can already show that these are increasing senescence in non-immune cells, just the splenocytes themselves. And on the on on the other side, they also show that they can help uh, reduce senescence in mice that are completely knockout for the ERCC1 um, nuclease by transferring. Uh, wild type immune cells. So it's kind of nice. It's a way of looking into immunosenescence and they show that the immune system itself and the senescence of the immune system can generate inflammation and senescence of other non-immune organs. So yeah, uh, your seems to predecess the organs, the immune cells become senescence before. So your own immune system is making you old, but you can get young with young immune systems. Yeah, well, that leads to a couple thoughts. One, apparently there's this whole movement where people inject young plasma into them to keep themselves young, which yeah. is kind of creepy. But then, you know, as a Bond villain, you could just take the bone marrow of young people who are HLA matched to you and, of course, then just, you know, transplant yourself and then prevent yourself from aging. We're, we're ignoring all the transplant issues here. 
But I mean, in reality, what you would do is take out your own immune cells, CRISPR it back to a better state, and then uh, plug it back in. But you know, you know, then, yeah. you know, then we can have our immortal overlords over all of us. Yeah, I wonder if you could get like, when you're like 18 or something, you're 20s, you just like generate a bank of your young immune cells, and then you just reapply them like later on. Every every five years, you just get a get a, a pump. After you're 40, you get some of your young cells. I mean, I, I like I this idea. A, it's, it's much less Bond villain than what I was going for, but but I'll take it. I, um, see, I, see, a, I see a business model there. I do too. Okay. What about your next story for today? Ah, here we go. So, you know, it's back to my old stopping grounds. So it's a thymic development of gut microbiota specific T cells, also in nature. Published here May 12th, uh, first author is Daniel F. Zegara Ruiz. So this is a really interesting paper because I didn't I didn't know this technology existed to track things. Um, so long story short, they demonstrated that um, they basically took a pathogen or a, a, a pathogen with a very specific pattern that they could use and track and then track C cells that developed from it that were antigen specific. And so they were able to track this and determined that, um, you know, we obviously know that antigen-specific recognition of T-cells uh, is a thing, right? So, we, you know, intestinal microorganisms will develop antigen-specific T-cell responses. Uh, the question is how, what about the thymus, right? And so they actually show that specific dendritic cells uh, will take microbial antigens from the intestine to the thymus which then induces expansion of microbiota-specific T-cells derived in the thymus. We know that T-cells in the intestine do this, but not that these dendritic cells would take a walk up to the thymus and do it in the thymus as well. These aren't Tregs, these are active antigen T-cells. So the entire way this works for the entire paper is that you did a segmented filamentous bacteria. Um, and so you can use those and then with a defined SFB tetramer, and you give, um, so SFBs, these filamentous bacteria, are one of the only few microorganisms that has a very specific known microorganism specific T cell receptor that's identified. And there's a defined tetramer that allows you to track it. So you can basically track a specific pathogen through the process or even just a commensal. And that's not really pathogenic, but it's a specific bug through the process of antigen presentation to the host and figure out where the cells pick up that signal. So super cool. So they do young and old mice and show this only works in young mice and adult mice don't have this. And then they track it and show that there's the cells in the thymus and they're antigen specific and all the ways that matter. They show that they're derived properly and it's not a blood contaminant. And then by depleting everything with CD45, get rid of all the circulating blood. And then they go around and show that these dendritic cells are responsible for the antigen. And they define it as CXCR, you know, so CX3CR1 positive dendritic cells are what causes the expansion, not CD103. So the CX3CR1 dendritic cells translocate to the thymus and then present it and make these thymic-derived T-cell subsets. And they are true activated T-cells that are, you know, maintain their state. And then they show that it can drive colitis using a T-cell transfer model of colitis. Basically, they finish it off by saying, hey, if you take these and put it into the host that's also been secretly immunized, they will then have an extra strong reaction versus a cross match where they do it with E. coli. It's pretty cool. That's kind of cool. I uh, There's so many, especially recently, so many of these nomadic antigen presenting cells, the travel relearn distances bringing antigens from one place to the other kind of cool but this dendritic cells so they're presenting to t cells that are in which stage of development because usually it's not it's kind of this this this, this thymic cells that are in, in, are um, training or presenting antigen to the t cells within the thymus right so these are so the thymus is a place where you get trained up right there's okay. immature immature-ish t cells that got to go to school and get their degree and so, in addition to other T cells training T cells in the thymus, you have apparently these dendritic cells which train T cells in the thymus to be specific to an antigen. So they're not because usually antigen specificity will result in deletion of the T cells. But this is not the case. This is activation. 
direct, yeah. and then you have already ready to go cells. They're not naive. They don't leave as naive cells from the thymus. They are activated cells that leave the thymus because of training they receive in the thymus. Right. That's kind of cool. I guess it makes sense because you're really, uh, specifically this, this bacteria are super important for the early development of, of gut immunity, right? They're really known as kind of important commensals. And well, what's interesting here is, I mean, this does it for all, but they were just using it to track this one. So presumably this is a conserved mechanism, right? And they show that with the T-cell transfer that it's also conserved with E. coli, uh, the, the downstream effect of a T-cell transfer colitis training. But the point is, is that like, right, so a, a trained T cell is going to turn off a bunch of other T cells in the thymus so that you get deletion, right? And that's one type of training. And so, but a dendritic cell is not a T cell. And so you have an opposite signal going on to generate fully ready to go T cells when a dendritic cell presents in the thymus. So you can have both effects. And so obviously, you know, in people that don't have colitis, probably you have both going on where you have deletion of the cells. Um, and training to not have self-antigen or commensal antigen. But there's also a dendritic cell program that's letting people be known, letting your cells be known that there is indeed a antigen here to be aware of. And these are cells that are, because they are coming from their development in the thymus and then they get trained or are cells that recirculate into the thymus and then get trained? They didn't look like they were recirculating. So ah, they, they okay. say depleted okay. everything with anti-40, anti-CD45. That's a way to get rid of blood contamination. But they also did RNA-seq on them and they, they're, they're thymic cells. But there you go. Dendritic cells go hang out in the thymus and present microbial antigen to them and positively train them. I mean, why not? They go to so many places. Why the thymus should be different? All right. So uh, to finish today, uh, I have to present the obligatory mandatory COVID paper. Sorry for that. Uh, and this paper talks a little bit about the dark side of antibodies. So I think uh, I like I liked it very much. Uh, it's a paper from uh, researchers here in Amsterdam at the Amsterdam University Medical Center. First authors, Viliane Hopel and Hang Jen Chen. And it's a collaboration of the labs from Jerome Dendunen and Menno Den Winter, as I said, from the AUMC. And published in Student Press, at least when I downloaded it, in Science Translational Medicine. And it's titled High Titers and Low Focusilation of Early Immune, uh, Early Human Anti SARS CoV 2 IgG Promote Inflammation by Alveolar Macrophages. So I liked it because uh, I don't know if you, if it was the case for you, but uh, I remember that, uh, if you remember same at the beginning of the whole COVID thing, I think there was also a lot of uh, a little bit of fear about the kind of immunity that you would get uh, from COVID and the the chance of having some unexpected side effects of developing um, antibodies against COVID. I, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the this uh, um, antibody dependent enhancement ADE that is also seen that is seen in, in dengue infections in which you generate uh, antibodies against uh, one strain of dengue and then if you get infected by a slightly different strain of dengue you can actually have uh, this uh, these antibodies can actually promote viral infection uh, of immune cells uh, because they exploit the phagocytic uh, FCR receptors for uh, for introducing the virus that is not completely neutralized because these antibodies were not kind of we're, we're kind of poorly neutralizing antibodies. And in the end, you end up having like infected macrophages because of the ant antibodies. And so I remember that at some point, I don't know, there was like a little bit of, 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 of fear whether vaccines could, could potentially uh, do this, whether infection of COVID could then, a second infection could be problematic. Uh, thankfully, that wasn't the case. Uh, but I think there is, uh, there's a lot to say about antibodies being capable of actually worsening pathology and as things is all seen in some uh, autoimmune diseases. And so the what the what the researchers looked into, they tried to like address the fact that COVID-19 patients tend to become, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. MD, uh, they tend to become critically ill a little bit later, around one to two weeks after infection, which coincides with kind of the activation, the buildup of the adaptive immune response and the generation of, of IgG antibodies. 
And they wanted to look at whether there was a relationship within these, these two events. And they kind of find one. I think it's kind of nice. So they, they, they looked at patients that were critically ill uh, at the hospital. And they, they see that, so they have really high uh, levels of IgG. And that this, that is anti-spike, uh, uh, directed against a spike protein. And they, they, they show that by um, exposing monocyte-derived macrophages that were uh, developed, that were differentiated um, to resemble alveolar macrophages. So this kind of quote-unquote M2 macrophages, uh, please, uh, some people are, have issues with this terminology. But basically, they differentiate these macrophages using MCSF and IL-10, and they seem to resemble the, the most alveolar macrophages. And they see that when they 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 add this anti-spike antibodies from critically ill patients, they actually see a kind of an inflammatory profile developing in these macrophages. And they do this with this in vitro differentiated. They also do it with primary macrophages, and they conclude that there's something about uh, these antibodies, and they also do a, they kind of rule out cytokines, other things in the serum, and they come to the conclusion that it's this, this particular antibodies that are activating macrophages in kind of unwanted or kind of very strong ways. And they end up looking at the characteristics of these uh, antibodies, and they show and they find that they have kind of an unusual fucosylation and galactosylation of their FC, uh, of their FC regions. So uh, these are sugars that are uh, people, um, you might know that uh, antibodies have uh, kind of areas for, for glycosylation uh, and they have, you know, they have, have added sugars to their uh, constant regions. And so by having, so they have a certain profile that is kind of the normal profile of glycosylation, but they see that this particular antibodies have decreased Fucosylation, which is one type of sugar, and increased galactosylation of this FC receptor, of FC, FC regions. And this seems to really more strongly uh, bind uh, certain gamma, FC uh, gamma receptors in macrophages uh, that are expressed by alveolar macrophages, and that this really activates the macrophages in a way that induces inflammation and contributes to uh, the permeabilization of pulmonary, uh, pulmonary epithelium, so thrombosis, and, and basically a lot of the phenotype that you see in the lungs. Um, and of course, and here I looked into the, they seem to have no competing interests, but they, they make the point that there is a particular uh, small molecule inhibitor called fostamatimniv, which is an inhibitor of of the of a, a um, protein that is a signaling molecule um, signaling protein downstream of the FC receptors that is a sick and so a kinase that is uh, downstream of these receptors and they they show that by using this this uh, inhibitor they can uh, impair or can they can reduce the effect of these antibodies on macrophages and they really propose so this is a uh, approved medicine for for anti for, uh, for um, autoimmune disease uh, auto inflammation I think is I forgot exactly in which uh, cases it's used but it's already approved and by the FDA the, e uh, the EMA and they suggest that this could be a potential tr therapy option for patients that are in this in this place in which they have this uh, highly that this uh, this, uh, this antibodies that have aberrant uh, gly uh, glycosylation, which after some time subsides and gets kind of, uh, it's not permanent. It lasts maybe a week or two and then, or, or less, and then it just, uh, it, it uh, subsides. But during that time, it really seems to be driving uh, inflammation in these patients. So they don't seem to have any stakes on this small molecule inhibitor, but uh, they really uh, propose, uh, they want to do a clinical trial for this. Impatience. That's, that's interesting. So, are they only going to do it for dengue, or are they going to try to do a broader trial where they actually like look at your antibodies for a variety of diseases that meet this pattern? Like, this is really presumably 
dengue isn't the only virus that can have these weird antibodies, right? In this case, they want to do it for COVID. So this critically ill from COVID. So they're going to do it critically ill from COVID. And do they think that, is there a high enough percent that everyone with COVID um, who's critically ill has these screwed up antibodies? There's only a subset. Like, are they going to have to subset out the people and like, you know, mass spec their antibodies? Not all of the patients, but at least I would say 60% of the patients have uh, fucosylation levels that are below the mean for the non-antispike IgG. So, but this is specific of antispike IgGs. And the characterization is a little bit less dramatic, uh, but it, there is a tendency, I would say about half of the patients have uh, increased galactosylation in their antibodies, in their anti-spike IgGs compared to their total IgGs. That's interesting. So I, I think it's a really interesting uh, approach that they're taking and uh, important biology. I'm wondering if it's going to be clinically practical, though, to put on the devil's advocate hat. If, if you're going to get half of people or less that have the aberrant antibody who are very ill, and then you're going to try to see if you can get an effect in those groups, it could work, right? 50% baseline yeah. of the total population could be enough. But maybe it's a threshold effect. So that's really, you know, of that that are below the mean. Maybe it's only the people that, you know, one deviation out that really matter, right? And so now you're even a yeah. smaller population where this treatment's eligible. It's not a bad idea. I'm just wondering if the eligible population that could benefit from fixing their aberrant, uh, you know, antibody modifications to kind of keep it simply uh, is high enough. Now, the good news is that the drug's already on the market, and so you don't have to spend a lot of money to do a tox package, but you do have to then right. figure out the efficacy. And is there a yeah. way to identify who could be efficacious or not and get enough signal to noise given your your potential signals low? Could be hard. I guess that the question is what, what would be the downsides of, of testing this in the patients? Um, I think anything that can reduce general inflammation is probably going to be beneficial. I, and I don't know exactly what the risk would be. Yeah, I mean, anti-inflammation sounds like it would be useful overall, but, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be worth the trial in this case. But it's worth looking at. It is. All right. So, yeah, that's where the paper's for today. All right. Well, we have a great interview coming up. We're going to be speaking with Drs. Judy Lieberman and Caroline Junquiera here in just a moment. But before we get to that, looking for in-depth information on cell separation? Download the Cell Separation eBook from Stem Cell Technologies now, a practical guide on everything you need to know about cell isolation techniques, including a collection of protocols. Visit stemcell.com slash cell hyphen separation to explore the guide and download the free eBook. We are talking today to Dr. Judy Liverman and Dr. Caroline Junqueira. Dr. Liverman is a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and chair of cellular and molecular medicine at Boston's Children's Hospital. Dr. Junqueira is an associate professor at the Osvaldo Cruz Foundation in Brazil and a visiting scientist at Harvard Medical School, where she works at the Liberman Lab. And she's the first author of a research paper published in Nature Immunology earlier this year, entitled Gamma Delta T-Sos, Suppressed Plasmodium falciparum Blood Stage Infection by Direct Killing and Phagocytosis. More on that later. Thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you and hear more about this research. Thank you for inviting us. So, yeah, I guess dive in to start with. Um, how did you guys end up linking up and then working on uh, the story? So uh, my lab had figured out a new immune defense against intracellular bacteria and parasites. Uh, and we had in which uh, killer cells actually are able to recognize infected cells and not only kill the host cell, but also target the intracellular um, pathogen for um, destruction. And um, uh, we had done the work, I didn't know anything about parasites. Um, uh, and killer cells have a molecule called granulysin that permeabilizes the membranes of bacteria and parasites. And I, wa I wanted to look at whether it, it might be used to kill different parasites. And since I didn't know anything about parasite biology, I uh, 
found uh, Ricardo Gassinelli, who's uh, a premier uh, immunologist studying parasites, both at Via Cruz in Brazil and at UMass Medical Center in Massachusetts. And together we published the paper in which we showed that killer lymphocytes could recognize and kill um, a, a, a series of parasites uh, that cause human disease, trypanosomes, leishmania, and toxoplasmosis. And Caroline was a colleague of Ricardo's in Thea Cruz, and she um, independently started looking at whether um, this immune defense might work in malaria, which is the most important parasitic infection in the world, which is an expert on. And then from this work, actually, we did uh, uncover a really unexpected uh, role of CD80 cells in, co in controlling blood stage malaria. Uh, in the context of plasmodiovivex infection that strictly uh, infects heteroclocytes and then present antigens to those CD80 cells. So it was mainly on the context of plasmodiovivex that's the main cause of malaria in, uh, in Asia and also in Latin America. But in contrast, plasmodiovivex, that is the, the most prevalent species in uh, in Africa, do not infect uh, mainly uh, heteroclocytes that are these immature blood cells that sense to CD80 cells. So our next question when I came to Judy's lab was to try to, uh, uh, to figure out if there is another T cells that may could play a role to uh, control the plasmodifalciparo uh, uh, infection at blood stage. And can, can I just add something? Sure. Um, so, yeah, so red, so blood stage, uh, so in, in, you know, when malaria infects red blood cells, it wasn't previously thought that CDAT cells would have any role in immune defense because they don't express MHC and recognition by T cells is mediated by MHC. However, it turned out that because um, vivax, the malaria species in, in Brazil and uh, Asia, um, infects immature red blood cells or reticulocytes that still have the machinery for um, uh, translating um, protein, that in the context of uh, malaria, which is a very inflammatory disease, the reticulocytes actually express MHC and are recognized by CD8 T cells. But falciparum malaria, which is uh, even more virulent than Vivax, um, infects mature red blood cells that don't have any MHC. So that was sort of what Caroline um, started looking at, could there be other uh, lymphocytes that might recognize the uh, blood stage of calciferin uh, malaria? I am, if I may, I, I understand that then you also observe that patients with uh, in an infection with plasmodium falciparum also had unusual levels of a certain population of T cells, of gamma delta T cells, and that also led you to look at what those cells uh, were uh, identifying on these uh, red blood cells. Maybe can you tell us more about uh, how the story goes uh, from that point? Yeah, so there were, there were a lot of hints in the literature that an innate-like population of lymphocytes called gamma-delta T cells uh, might play an important role in malaria. First of all, uh, it was known that... Um, uh, that patients who are infected with malaria have an expansion of gamma-delta T cells in the blood that's often, um, it can reach even 30% of the blood lymphocytes. Uh, usually it's a lot lower. It was also, um, it's also known that those 
that those gamma delta T cells recognize what we would call a pathogen-associated molecular pattern or PAM. They recognize a metabolite of isoprenoid biosynthesis that's found in bacteria and parasites, but not in mammalian cells. And, and so that it, it made sense based on what was known about these gamma delta T cells in the blood that they might respond to malaria. And then there was another really intriguing finding, which uh, nobody really understood, which is that, um, so there, there, there's a vaccine, an antibody-based vaccine um, for malaria that's partially effective um, that raises antibodies to a circumsporozoite uh, protein. And uh, about 25 to 50% of people uh, are protected by that vaccine. And whether or not you were protected um, correlated with whether you had an ex how, how many gamma delta T cells you had in your blood when you were vaccinated. And so, so there was all this intriguing suggestion that gamma delta T cells might be important. And there was also a French investigator who, um, who's, whose work suggested that gamma delta T cells uh, might recognize the blood, the free blood stage of malaria merosoids. So uh, that's sort of a lot of very intriguing suggestive evidence that sort of prompted us to look. And then Caroline uh, can tell you, she looked in, in the patients in the Amazon um, at, at the gamma delta T cells there. Yeah, and as uh, previous described for plasma falciparo, the, uh, in, like in African, other regions, we also found that the patients from Amazon also had higher activation of the gamma delta T cells during the acute phase. And then they also had higher granulizing levels in this, in the serum, but totally correlates with like our previous, uh, uh, work with, uh, plasma juvivix and CD80 cells and also Judy's work on the contest of granulizing, killing uh, intracellular parasites. So then we started from there and we were, uh, we were able to show that actually those uh, gamma delta T cells from both the uh, uh, plasmodium infected patients in Amazon and also in vitro studies that those gamma delta T cells do directly kill the infected red blood cells. And uh, this uh, killing, it's contact dependent and also dependent of the uh, sensory molecule uh, butyrophilin, that it's a receptor with a Ig immunoglobulin-like protein that in the surface of the red blood cells and the other cells that sense uh, uh, parasite metabolics like phosphoantigens that are produced by the parasites during the replication process. So this uh, uh, phosphoantigen uh, binds to the intracellular uh, um, domain of the phospho uh, of the butyrophilin that, as consequence, sends to the gamma delta T cells. So activating them and like triggering all the effector mechanism. Well, so we also found that actually, in addition to this uh, butyrophilin mole sensing molecule dependence, uh, there is also, of course, the dependence of the gamma delta TCR on the uh, gamma delta side. So uh, it was really uh, interesting to show also that it forms immunological synapse, just confirming that this contact, it's really uh, happening. What I also was very surprised to read is that these gamma delta cells are phagocytosing yes. their yes. targets. Yes. And it looks to me like everything new we learn about these gamma delta cells, they look like this little Swiss knife of immunology. Is there yes. something they cannot do? Uh, maybe tell us more about that. Yeah, so... Um, 
I think this is really fascinating. It, 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 for me, it, it, it sort of suggests that the gamma delta T cells are really primitive lymphocytes that still have some properties of, you know, myeloid cells like the ability to phagocytose and kill um, um, intracellular uh, pathogens. And that that was completely unexpected, and it's it's antibody dependent phagocytosis, um, uh, which uh, there was, nobody knew that these cells could do it. But it also explains why having a lot of gamma delta T cells helps people who develop an antibody response to a malaria vaccine because they make antibodies to the circumsporozoite uh, protein, which is on the sporozoites and uh, can then uh, phagocytose the parasite and infect the red blood cells. Um, So it's, um, you know, it, it explains a lot, but it also suggests that gamma delta T cells um, can recognize any antibody-coated red blood cell and might have a role in uh, other diseases as well, like um, there are autoimmune hemolytic anemias uh, where red blood cells get destroyed and gamma-delta T cells uh, are probably involved in, in that, although nobody has looked and we haven't yeah. yeah, and it, even the context of malaria, actually, uh, the, the anemia led by the infection, uh, maybe also uh, the gamma delta can also be contributing to this uh, the elimination of uninfected red blood cells. So this is another thing that we should pursue in the future to try to better understand this uh, anemia-associated uh, pathology with the gamma delta T cells effector mechanism. And then my follow-up was that, I mean, I've studied some ILCs and that's an interesting world that's kind of come up lately and natural killer cells are really innate lymphocytes. And then you have the ILC one, two, and three. And for so three are like TH17. And I'm wondering where you view these gamma delta in that framework and if maybe as we're going on and learning more and more about these innate like lymphocytes you mentioned maybe they're immature to an extent and are still you know a confused monocyte like properties but i was wondering if you could comment on that and how you guys see these and then the whole realm of ilcs as a framework that i think we're learning more about yeah i think that um it we haven't looked, but I think what this work suggests is that it's definitely worth looking at NK cells and ILCs, uh, mate cells. That you know, there are a number of uh, lymphocytes that recognize PAMPs. You know, like the the NK cells can recognize certain kinds of stress cells. The uh, mate cells recognize a MIP another uh, uh, biosynthetic property of infected, you know, of infection as opposed to host um, metabolism. And so I, I think that uh, it's possible that uh, um, NKT cells, another type of uh, innate-like uh, uh, lymphocyte, I, th- I think it's definitely worth seeing if, if any of these other uh, lymphocytes that recognize general features of infected cells might also have this phagocytic property. One thing that was really intriguing to me is, you know, there is um, a a process called antibody-dependent cytotoxicity that NK cells um, basically that have a receptor on their surface that recognize the antibody. Um, they can phagocytose um, cells and kill them. But this, we found what was really surprising is that the gamma delta cells didn't do that, which is a granule mediated um, type of killing, like conventional killing, but they did do this phagocytic killing. 
And these cells are CD3 positive, unlike canonicals, if you could even use that, ILC3s, right? So right. that's where the diverge yeah. are, but but they're still innate-like. So I was wondering, like, have you guys thought about evil single-cell RNA-seeking these, understanding how they're all related to each other, or any of that? Because it's just the more we keep looking, the more innate lymphocytes we find, which tells us that our naming is probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and the other thing which I want to point out is that um, this mechanism is is in humans, but not in mice. So mm -hmm. mice don't have this gamma chain gene, and they don't express granulysin. So it's it's that's partly why, you know, I think people haven't really, uh, and a lot of innate. Um, immune molecules have really evolved with the different pathogens that infect, you know, humans as opposed to mice, like malaria. I mean, it's not a big pathogen as far as I know. I mean, it can, there are strains of malaria that infect mice, but it, it may not be as, it's not as important an infection in mouse populations as in humans. So here we have a whole, I mean, these, uh, gamma delta T cells are the dominant circulating uh, uh, gamma delta cells in the blood, and they don't exist in mice at all. Do you do you think that so considering the specificity of this of this gamma delta chains to this um, molecule, is this uh, some kind of evidence of? the coevolution of, of men with, for example, this plasmodium parasites, or is this a common metabolic product of different infections that would justify kind of acquiring this particular repertoire of gamma delta T cells in uh, throughout human evolution? Yes, actually this uh, uh, metabolic, it's also uh, produced during the um, intracellular bacteria uh, by intracellular bacteria and other parasites. So it's the melovelate uh, pathway and uh, and they actually in mammalian cells the IPP also that it's like uh, alternative um, pathway also can bind to the intracellular uh, domain of the butyrophilin, but in a lower affinity. But what happens is, for instance, like in, during cancer, uh, the cells have higher metabolic activity and they produce more IPP. So producing more IPP, it may also sense gamma delta T cell dependent of the butyrophilin. So uh, it's something that can also be seen uh, in the host uh, autoimmune uh, response uh, to like cancer. And as I mentioned to the uh, intracellular parasites and bacteria. Yeah, for instance, um, so the other, one of the other, one of the other major pathogens in humans is, is tuberculosis. And the, the vaccine, um, BCG or TB, uh, will also activate these gamma delta T cells in, in humans. And, um, some people think that, you know, maybe, um, that BCG vaccination is what they, what's been called trained immunity, that it causes a proliferation of gamma delta T cells that then um, prepares people to uh, respond better to bac both bacterial and, and parasite infections. Uh, so uh, it's and also cancer because it's used for bladder cancer. Also, uh, the treatment of bladder cancer. So probably it's all driven by those gamma delta T cell the protection. Fascinating. I'm very excited to see what else uh, we find out in that in that realm. So yeah, we want kind of wanted to flip over and talk a little bit about your guys, both of your careers up until this point. Um, and I started wanting to start with one thing for Judy, which is I noticed you have a PhD in theoretical physics. And I'm, I'm sure you've <laughs> talked about this before at some point. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first one. And then, and then, then you went to med school. 
And so I, I'm just curious how one went about that journey um, okay. across those things. Well, okay. So I, um, I was actually a, a success, very successful theoretical physicist. And um, my PhD was actually on the Higgs boson. Maybe you heard about that particle that was discovered a few years ago. Um, and I, I had the great fortune to work at a very exciting time in physics. And I, I worked at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which was like the premier institute where Einstein was. Um, but at that time, which is a long time ago, <laughs> um, there were almost no women in physics. And I partly, I think I went into physics just to show that girls could do, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of work. Um, but I felt like I was very isolated, you know, and basically my day consisted of staring at a blank piece of paper and writing equations in social isolation uh, every day. And I, at a I, when I was young, I was very shy, and being alone and working by myself was was good. But as I grew up and became, you know, more mature, I wanted to do work that was sort of more socially useful and involved in people. So I decided to go to medical school uh, to become a doctor and never do research again. Um, but I chose uh, this program at that time, um, which was in the mid-1970s. There was a very innovative program um, between Harvard and MIT, which, was, uh, which actually foresaw the huge development of biotechnology, bioengineering, uh, biophysics. None of that existed at the time. And... Uh, this medical school program was like a scientific version of medical school where people of all disciplines sort of learned and worked on medical problems together. And so I went to that program and it, the program was designed to train physician scientists who would, you know, do research as well as take care of patients. So anyway, I went to that program and I trained to become a hematologist oncologist. Um, but as part of that training, you had to do like two years of research. And when I was an intern in my medical training, there were the first AIDS cases. And that was like a very, you know, gruesome disease. There was no treatment. Um, and a lot of young physicians of my generation you know, really wanted to do something to help uh, HIV. And so that's how I got into doing research because I trained in a lab um, uh, that studied cytotoxic lymphocytes. And I knew from my training that um, you could cure uh, mice of leukemias and lymphomas caused by retroviruses that are related to the HIV um, by adoptively transferring antiviral T cells. So I started my career trying to develop immune therapy for uh, HIV with uh, by expanding and giving billions of antiviral killer cells. <laughs> That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> I started with the Higgs boson and ended with antiviral uh, T cells. So a good place to go. Yeah, it was actually the first uh, antigen-specific T-cell therapy, um, I think, that was given. Um, and in some ways, it was a, a forerunner of CAR T-cells, which are a lot more effective than the T-cells. Oh, they're wonderful. They're wonderful cells, I'd say. But I guess that now new uh, ways of treatment are available for with CRISPR, for example, by knocking out CCR5. I think there's a new there are new uh, horizons in, for example, HIV treatment. 
that are very promising. And I wanted to ask, so for, for you, Caroline, so you've been working also for some years here at, uh, there at, uh, Harvard and this, in this paper that you published. So now you're also a corresponding author. And so what, how has been your experience as a young researcher? This must be a very exciting time for you. And, um, maybe do you want to talk about how your journey was, uh, to where you are? Okay. Thank you for calling me young research, although I'm not young anymore. <laughs> But I mean, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, I'm already associate professor in Brazil, although actually I got my position when I was really young. I was only 31 when I got my uh, position in Brazil. I was really uh, lucky. I don't know if it's lucky to be like in the right place at the right time. But uh, I think that uh, one of the major things about being at Judy's lab, it's like how much I did learn over those three years uh, from her. As you just heard about it, she has this outstanding um, trajectory in science and as a, also as a human being. And I'm trying to observe as much as I can uh, during this period here. And my, uh, my main goal, uh, like after this, as you ask it, it's like trying to both improve my, my, the quality of the science that I've been doing in Brazil. So actually, I, I believe that from the moment that I start doing research here at Harvard, uh, the way that I think, the, the way that I highlight my, write my hypothesis, the way that I develop my my how to develop my research has has completely changed and i think it's not only about the environment but specifically because of like judy's support and her brilliant mind and i also believe that actually after this time here i hope to as i mentioned to uh to in to improve my uh, my science back in Brazil in my lab. And I'm also trying to get a job here and maybe be able to have like a dual position between Brazil and the U.S. and try to foment this bridge between Latin America and U.S. I, 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 I noticed over the years that we still need to try to Uh, uh, make this bridge stronger because actually in general people are just like doing some collaboration here or there but I think that we need something more like consistent and try to develop this science between the two uh, parts of America together I mean that's my <laughs> that's Can what I, I want from my future <laughs> I, I just wanted to add that, you know, this paper that Caroline really, you know, she's the person who noticed that those gamma delta T cells were gobbling up the infected red blood cell. And the truth is, uh, nobody has noticed that before. She has an amazing, um, you know, both experimental skill and thoughtfulness and creativity about her work that's that's really unusual and um there she has a a couple of studies that are you know she's getting ready to publish uh one about that's sort of a follow-up on this on the the pre previous paper about buybacks where i think she may have the key to a a, a better a malaria vaccine and, you know, really exciting work there. And then in the COVID uh, epidemic, um, she led a, a study uh, in my lab where I think we may have figured out uh, why some people get severe COVID disease. So she's like a powerhouse uh, in science and she has an incredible future ahead of her that's a <laughs> wonderful i see a 
wonderful mentor and a wonderful mentee uh, I see here. And it's as really a really nice, uh, beautiful work that you have published. It was a pleasure to read. And the implications are extremely interesting and very uh, re relevant. So really congratulations on that and congratulations on all the work that you are doing. And I think on this high note, um, <laughs> maybe we can just uh, wrap up uh, this conversation. And uh, we, we at the podcast like to uh, finish up our asking a little question to our interviewees um, to get to know them a little bit better. And so I would like to ask you, uh, Judy, so you have already a very diverse background, but if you were not a scientist, what would you be? Well, I, I um, have another a sort of serious hobby in painting. And um, I think it, it would be, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I would have the courage to be a, a, an artist, but maybe an architect which sort of would, uh, you know, combine sort of very um, both design and social problem solving. Um, I think that would be a really neat uh, alternate career. That's wonderful. You're not the first uh, guest to mention architecture as a, <laughs> as a potential interest. That's uh, very interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And so, Caroline, for you, uh, the question is, uh, what is one hobby that you've always wanted to pursue but were never able to? Well, uh, I used to be actually uh, a high top horse riding. I used to do like jumping shows. And actually, unfortunately, because of like the, the I mean, the hours that we need to input in science, I had to quit that, <laughs> put on the side. It's a hobby that I really like to bring back to my life. It was something that always make me like more balanced in life, doing some like animal contact and the really outdoor sports and so many things. So I really do like to be able to, to, to go back to my horse ridings and maybe going back to competitions. I really like to compete in sports. I'm really competitive. So <laughs> I really like those. Uh, but I mean, of course, in a hobby level, not like professional. Maybe you can have a horse farm in your future. They're quite popular here in the States. I know, yes, I know lots I know. of people <laughs> that have in suburbia with just a couple horses. Well, thank you very much for coming on here. And it, it's been a pleasure having you on the Immunology Podcast. Okay. Thank you so much again for the invitation. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you for your interest in our work. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at immunologypodcast.com to get show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next week.